were in seminary, right after we were uh, married, you know, there would be people that she would talk to, and they would say, well, I'm trying to find somebody to take care of my child. She'd say, okay, well, I'll do it. And so uh, she's, she's done that, and she is very good at that. Um, she's very good at making children feel comfortable and at home and, and uh, working with them and dealing with them. And there's been some hard kids, and there's been some uh, very easy kids and everything in between. And, and again, it's been beneficial to us as a family to spend a little extra income uh, throughout the years, and that's been a tremendous blessing. Now, there are some kids, and most kids, again, they come into our, our home, wherever it is, and uh, Jennifer makes them feel at home, and they get settled in, and they're fine, and it works out good, and everything goes smoothly. But there are, and have been, just a few children that come in, and they are never happy. They are unsettled the entire time. You know what I'm talking about. Now, there is a time where they do finally get settled. You know when that time is? Sleep. When mama gets there, or when daddy gets there, when their parents show up, guess what? Everything is fine. Now, that tells us something. What that tells us is, is that there are some needs that we can't provide for those children that only mom and dad can provide. Right? There are only certain things that that can be done by mom and dad. Nobody else can do it. Now, when we look at this particular book, uh, we have to say that we're not nearly as smart as young children are when it comes to knowing that there are certain things that only their mommy and daddy can provide. Because we think that we can provide for ourselves all the time. We can take care of whatever situation comes. We can do it. We can take care of it. But that's a fallacy. That's not true at all. There are some things that only our daddy can provide. Only God can take care of. Only God can do. And that's what this book is all about. So I want us to look in 2 Kings chapter 25, verses 27 through 30. And let me show you. Hopefully I can show you. I can do a good job of showing you how this works. It says, in the 37th year of the exile of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, in the year evil Merodach became king of Babylon, he released Jehoiakim from prison on the 27th day of the 12th month. He spoke kindly to him and gave him a seat of honor higher than those of the other kings who were with him in Babylon. So Jehoiakim put aside his prison clothes and for the rest of his life ate regularly at the king's table. Day by day, the king gave Jehoiakim a regular allowance as long as he lived. Now, I know what you're thinking right now. Jeff, how did you get to only God can provide what we need from that? Alright. Let, let's go back and review what has taken place to get us to this point. The nation of Judah was being judged by God. The northern nation of Israel already been taken off into captivity about 722, 721 B.C. by the Assyrians. The nation of Judah hung around for a little bit longer time. And they had some good kings. It was Hezekiah uh, after Israel had been taken off into captivity. And, and then we had Josiah. They were both good kings. But after Josiah, we began to have some kings that were just did evil in the eyes of the Lord, did evil in the eyes of the Lord, did evil in the eyes of the Lord. 
So Jehoiakim was one of those. And Jehoiakim, uh, was, he died. And he was kind of put under subjection to the, ba uh, the Babylonians. And there were some uh, people from Judah who were taken off into captivity during that time. It's probably when Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were taken off during that time. His son Jehoiakim uh, then took over. And Jehoiakim only ruled for about three months when the Babylonians came in and totally took over, removed him from being the king. So he was kind of the last sovereign king over Judah. Take him off into Babylon into captivity. So they put him in prison like they did a lot of other kings uh, of other places. There is one last king. His name was Mataniah, but they, to show how Babylonians had control over him, they just say, hey, listen, we're going to give you a name change. Your name is now Zedekiah. And Zedekiah at that point said, sounds good to me, because if he was going to live, you take the name that the Babylonians give to you. So that's what he did. And Zedekiah's last king. Now, Zedekiah wasn't real bright. Uh, the Babylonians were very, very powerful. God had already spoken about his judgment on the people. He decides to rebel. And because of that, the last thing he ever sees is the death of his sons before the Babylonians take out his eyes. So, finally, in 587 B.C., Jerusalem is totally destroyed. The walls are torn down. The temple is looted. And it's left in ruin. And the people of Judah are taken off into captivity. There are a few that happened to escape to Egypt, and we're told that in verse 26. It says, At this, all the people from the least to the greatest, together with the army officers, fled to Egypt for fear of the Babylonians. That's talking about everybody left. They, they were just trying to get out of the territory, get out of the way of the Babylonians because of this judgment that had come. And then we see this text. Now, what I want us to do is to look at this text and see that there are three truths that we need to understand concerning God's work here. The first is that there's a glimmer of hope for Jehovah. There's a glimmer of hope here. It says for 37 years he had been in exile. And something changes. Nebuchadnezzar, who had been king, dies. And this man, evil Merodach, now that doesn't, in, in English, that doesn't translate real well. Okay, that, that sounds like, you know, the, the uh, evil character in a Disney film or something like that. Evil Merodach, you know, but, but that's it was just, just the way it's translated. Um, not that he was necessarily better than Nebuchadnezzar or any of the, you know, other Babylonian kings, but he decides, when he becomes king, he goes in and he releases Joachim from prison. And he brings him out and he exchanges his prison clothes for uh, clothes worn in the palace, and he gives him a seat higher than all of the other kings. And he allows him to eat at the king's table. So he gives him honor and uh, gives him clothing. And it says in verse 30, he even gave him a regular allowance as long as he lived. He gave him money to be able to do with what he wanted. What a tremendous blessing this is. So we see this glimmer of hope for, Je for Jehoiakim. Now, this is the question that we ought to be asking at this point. And, and that is, what do these four verses 
have to do with what God is trying to tell us? Why not just end this book with, and from the least of them to the greatest, together with all the army officers, they fled to Egypt for fear of the Babylonians. Why not just end it there? Why give us these four verses here? There has to be a reason, right? I mean, God doesn't do anything haphazardly. God put this for a reason. So why is it? Well, I think we need to kind of go back and let's begin to work our way through the book of Kings. You say, Jeff, you know, it's taken us like a year and a half, two years to go through. We're going to go through the whole thing. Well, just it's going to be brief. We're going to bring summary here, recap what has taken place. I want you to remember that there was a time in the history of the people of Israel that they were to only have one king. And that king was to be God. When the people of Israel came into the promised land and Joshua, their leader, died, there was no one to lead except for God. And God was to be the one who was to lead them. Now, there were judges, there were leaders. There were people who came along, regional leaders, uh, like Jephthah or Gideon or Othniel or Samson, and, and they would rule at different times and in different, in different regions of Israel but there was no king. And the reason for it is because God was to be the king of the people of Israel. They were to look to him for all things. They were to submit themselves to his word. They were not to do anything without his direction. And they had learned this. This had been taught. Remember when they were in the desert after being brought out of Egypt? God took them from place to place with the pillar of fire and the cloud of fire at night. He led them everywhere they needed to go. That was the pattern they were supposed to follow. But if you know anything about the book of Judges, you know that it was a godless time. It was bad. I mean, the people of Israel just went off the deep end. And at the end of it, they finally say, we want a king like all the other nations have. In essence, what they were saying is, God, we want somebody to rule over us other than you. You remember in uh, the, the parable of the prodigal son, when the prodigal son comes to the father and says, I want my inheritance. Well, when do you get your inheritance from your, your parents or your ancestors? When they die, right? So basically what he was saying is, is look, I'm going to treat you like you're dead. I want my inheritance. And I want to go about my life. That's the kind of attitude that the people of Israel had. God we don't really care anything about what you say. We want to do our own thing and live our own way. And so God said, all right, well, I'll give you a king like all the other nations have. And we have King Saul who came along. Now, Saul was tall. He looked apart. But he had not one godly bone in his body. I mean, he just, he fumbled everything. Uh, and God took away the kingship from his family, from uh, his descendants, from Saul. Saul failed. But then God selected a young shepherd boy named David. Because God, you understand, was not necessarily opposed to a king as long as God was the one who selected the king. You go back and look at Deuteronomy and see that. God anticipated that the people would ask for a king. What he said is, you let me select him. 
You don't ask for what you want. You just take what I give you. And so David comes along. Man after God's own heart. And David becomes the picture of what everyone's looking for in a king. If they wanted an example of a king to rule over them, it was David. That's why we see time and time again in this particular book that if they were really doing what they were supposed to, the kings, then they would say they followed in the pattern of David, their father. He was a man after God's own heart. He loved the Lord. He trusted the Lord, followed the Lord. But David also had failings. He murdered Uriah after having adultery with Bathsheba, his wife. He was a horrible father. There were times where he lacked faith. He counted, for example, the fighting men in Israel instead of trusting that God was going to give victory and God brought judgment in David. You see, David was a failure as well. Then Solomon came along. Solomon, David's son, started off real well. God came to Solomon in a dream and said, Solomon, whatever you ask for, I will give it to you. Solomon said, I want discernment to be able to rule over my people well. God said, because you ask for wisdom and not money and fame, I'll give it all to you. So Solomon started off well. He started off wise, and we saw that in 1 Kings. That's where 1 Kings started. And Solomon did real well at the beginning, but then he began to intermarry with uh, wives from other nations. It was kind of the thing that all the other nations did. And he was drawn away from God, began to worship the idols that his wives worshipped, and Solomon failed. So God said, I'm going to split the nation of Israel into two, the northern nation of Israel, the southern nation of Judah. And that's what happened. So we go from the united kingdom with Saul, David, and Solomon, now to a divided kingdom. Now let's talk about the northern kings of Israel. Now the northern kings of Israel are easy to remember. Because, and not their names, but their character. They all did what was evil in the eyes of the Lord. Whether it was Jeroboam, the very first one, whether it was Ahab somewhere uh, in the middle, or whether it was Jehu towards the end, they all did evil in the eyes of the Lord. None of them worshipped God. They set up places of worship in different uh, areas of the northern nation of Israel, Instead of going down to Jerusalem to worship at the temple where God's name rested in that place, they worshiped where they wanted. They also set up high places. They had the Baal worship. They had the Asherah worship. And they brought it all into Israel and they all failed. Well, what about the southern nation of Judah? The southern nation of Judah uh, had about, I don't remember exactly, 1920 kings. And uh, those 20 kings, these 20 kings, some of them were good, some of them were evil. majority of them did evil in the eyes of the Lord, but there were a few that were good. So we kind of perk up at this point, and we said, well, that's a good thing, right? You know, surely they could find somebody who was good among those who did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. So we start out with Asa. He was the first one who did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, and Asa was a good man. He he did a lot of good things as uh, king. He lived a long time and he ruled over the nation of Judah, the southern nation, fairly well. But he trusted in the king of Aram at one point in his life instead of trusting in God. And Asa became a failure. Well, then we have Jehoshaphat. I talked about Jehoshaphat this morning. You can remember him because... 
he has a really funny name. Any kid that has the name Jehoshaphat uh, may get beat up in school if he, he had that today. So you may want to think about that one if you're thinking about kids' names. Uh, something about that. But, you know, Josh, Jehoshaphat was a good guy. He was a man of prayer. We talked about this morning how he called out to God, brought the nation of, of Judah together to, to pray. But you see, Jehoshaphat was not perfect either. He worked alongside the wicked king of Israel on multiple occasions. It seemed very naive at multiple points. You see, Jehoshaphat was a failure. Then there was Joash. We would think of Joash and the chest of Joash collecting the money in order to repair the temple. That needed to be done. That was a great thing that Joash instituted. And as long as the priest who had raised him was there and supporting him. Joash did what was right and they repaired the temple. But later on, Joash listened to the officials and abandoned the temple for idol worship and even put the son of the man, the, the high priest who had raised him to death. Joash was a failure. And then we come to Amaziah. Amaziah trusted the Lord to go out against the Edomites. And he went out and led the nation of Judah, the small nation of Judah, against the Edomites and had a great victory. But then when Amaziah, pride took over. And when pride took over, he said, if I can beat the Edomites, I can beat the Israelites, the northern nation of Israel. And he went out to fight against them. He lost miserably and was assassinated by his own people. Amaziah failed. And there was Azariah, Azariah or Uzziah, as, as he's called in the book of Second Corinthians, or excuse me, Second uh, uh, Chronicles. Uh, Azariah uh, was a, a good king. He did a lot of good things. He ruled over uh, the nation of Judah in a good way and brought a lot of fame to the nation of Judah. Yet there was a time where he became very prideful, and he entered into the holy place where only the priests were supposed to go, and he was struck with leprosy. And ended up being buried separate from all the other kings because of his leprosy. Azariah failed. Then Jotham came along. We don't see a whole lot talking about Jotham. But we see that he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. Except for the fact that he did not remove the high places that were in Judah at the time. And allowed the pagan worship to continue. And Jotham failed. And we see Hezekiah. Now Hezekiah was good. He was a cut above the rest. Hezekiah was a man of prayer. He was a man of faith. He trusted the Lord. But even good Hezekiah had pride that came into his heart. And he didn't respond, respond properly to the kindness that God had showed him. Even Hezekiah failed. Well, there was one more. The last king that was good in the nation of Judah was Josiah. And Josiah was in the same plane as Hezekiah. He was, he was really good. He was a great king over Judah. And he did some marvelous things. Passionate. Man, who was passionate for God's word. He found God's word as he was repairing the temple. And he said, we're going to come together. I'm going to read this to you. And the people of Judah heard the words of, of the law that were read to them. And he said, we're going to do it. And he set about in his life to get rid of all the pagan places of worship. And he did that, and he was focused on God, but even Josiah could not change the hearts of the people 
of Judah. And as we've looked at, the prophet Jeremiah said, their obedience was only pretense. Couldn't change their heart. So when we come to the book of 1 and 2 Kings, you know what we have here? We have a book of failure. Every single king failed. Not one of them did it right. Not one of them got it the way God wanted them to have it. Not one of them was perfect. Not one of them was sinless. They all had their failings. It is a book of failure. And you would say, why would God give us these books if they are just a book of failures? And then... Why in this book of failures, let's go back to our original question, why in this book of failures does he give us these four verses right here at the end? Well, let me tell you, these four verses at the end are a glimpse of God's grace. You see, the nation of Israel had been doing it their way, in their power. The nation of Judah had been doing it their way, in their power. And this is a picture that there is another king that is going to come that all other kings need to bow down to and to serve who's going to be greater than all. This king is going to restore to the nation of Israel and in fact not just to the nation of Israel but to every nation in the world what, was what they were supposed to be and what they were supposed to have. And so that's what we see. There was no earthly king who could lead the people in the right way and there was definitely no earthly king who could change the hearts of the people that they ruled over. Except the prophets spoke. Remember, we've talked a lot about the prophets here in the book of 1 and 2 Kings. We've seen how Elijah and Elisha came onto the scene. You see, the kings weren't following the Lord, so God began to speak through prophets instead of kings. We've talked about prophets like Hosea and Amos. We've talked about uh, prophets like Habakkuk and Jeremiah. The prophets came along. Well, you know what? The prophets, during this very time, spoke about a king who was coming. I want to read to you just a few of the passages about this coming king. Listen to what the prophet Jeremiah says in Jeremiah 30. Beginning in verse 8. In that day, declares the Lord Almighty, I will break the yoke off their necks and will tear off their bonds. No longer will foreigners enslave them. Instead, they will serve the Lord their God and David their king, whom I will raise up for them. Now, do you think that would have an impact on people who were taken into captivity? Jeremiah is saying there's going to be one of the line of David whom I'm going to raise up and he's going to break the back of all those that enslaved my people. The prophet Ezekiel, who spoke during the time of the exile, this is what he says in Ezekiel 37, beginning verse 21. He says, this is what the sovereign Lord says. I will take the Israelites out of the nations where they have gone. I will gather them from all around and bring them back into their own land. I will make them one nation in the land on the mountains of Israel. There will be one king over all of them. 
And they will never again be two nations or be divided into two kingdoms. They will no longer defile themselves with their idols and vile images or with any of their offenses. For I will save them from all their sinful backsliding and I will cleanse them. They will be my people and I will be their God. My servant David will be king over them and they will all have one shepherd. One more. Hosea 3.5 says afterward. It's talking about after the exile. Afterward the Israelites will return and seek the Lord their God and David their king. They will come trembling to the Lord and to his blessing in the last days. What is the book of kings speaking of? What are the prophets speaking of? They are pointing us in a big, bright, pointy arrow to Jesus. That's what's happening. And we need to understand from the book of Kings that the king that we're looking for is Jesus. He is our hope. He was the hope of the nation of Israel, and in fact, he is the hope of every nation. Jesus is the true king. Now, I spoke about several weeks ago, the kingship of Jesus is something that is uh, now and not yet. He's king now. He speaks of uh, a kingdom that he rules over now. Listen to Luke 4.43. He says, I will preach the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns also because that is why I was sent. Now that's just one verse among many, many where he talks about that he came to usher in the kingdom of God, that he was preaching the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven. He talked about the kingdom more than he did just about anything. This is the kingdom he's talking about. He's ushering in the kingdom that was declared in the Old Testament for us to be our king. In John 18.36 it says, uh, Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jews. But now my kingdom is from another place. You see, his kingdom comes from heaven. And it ushers in, it comes into this world and invades this sinful world where we surrender to him as our master and our Lord and our king. It's already been ushered in. But we also know that it's a, it's a not yet thing. Because there is going to be a time where Jesus' kingdom is seen physically in the fullness of all that it was intended to be. When Jesus comes again, that's going to happen. That's when every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord of all. You know, Jesus can be this king because he succeeded in upholding the covenant where all the other kings faith. Just let me give you a few scriptures. John 17, 4. Jesus is praying. He says, I brought you glory on earth. He's talking to the Father. I brought you glory on earth by completing the work you gave me to do. Was there any king that did that? That completed the work that God had given them to do? There was no other king who did that, but Jesus did. In 2 Corinthians 5, 21, Paul said of Jesus, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him 
we might become the righteousness of God. You see what that talks about? This is where none of the other kings could change the hearts of people. This is where Jesus succeeded. He became sin for us. Why? So that we could receive his righteousness. God's grace. It is found only in Jesus. He is our ruler. He is our master. So we in this nation, we need to stop looking for hope in America, in its leaders. And we need to look to Christ. It doesn't make any difference whether Hillary Clinton or Donald Trump becomes president of the United States in the aspect of the fact that we serve a higher king than our president. We'll honor whoever is placed into that office. We need to do that. We need to pray for them. We need to pray for their salvation. We need to pray for them to do what's right. But ultimately, we serve a greater authority. We are so blessed to have a king who in every way is trustworthy. He is a king who doesn't flip-flop from one subject to another on the issues because he wants to make sure he's re-elected. Not the kind of king that we have, you know what? Because he doesn't rule by vote, he rules because he has all authority. It is because he has right, the right to sit on the throne. We ought to stop looking for satisfaction in good economic times, but we ought to look to Christ. Because he will give us riches that rust and moth cannot destroy, and that thief not take away. We need to stop looking for hope or stop losing hope in those times that are tough because God's grace is sufficient for us and it will satisfy us. Jesus is the king who reaches down to every subject that he loves us and he cares for us. He's the one who gives us hope and hardship. We need to stop like the kings of old living for ourselves and live for Christ alone. Because not even ourselves, not, not even you, can satisfy your every need. Only Jesus can do that. Ken Langley took a passage from the book Return of the King by J.R.R. Tolkien. If you've never read that series, listen, don't watch the movies, go read the books. They're bad. Book is always that. And read the return of the king. There is a, a point in there where Aragon, who is the rightful king of the West, and he has labored long in, in obscurity. Uh, he has foregone the kingly comforts in order to serve and fight for his people, fight their battles, and he has repeatedly risked his life them. And at last, he prevails over the Dark Lord, and he is poised to enter the city where he will rule at last. And Aragorn is about to enter the fortified city of Minas Tirith and be the, uh, the first king that that 
nation has that city has seen in a long time. And the king steward proclaims Aragorn's royal pedigree. And he says this. Here is Aragorn, son of Arathorn, chieftain of the Dunedain of Arnor, captain of the host of the west, bearer of the star of the north, wielder of the sword reforged, victorious in battle, whose hands bring healing, the elf stone, a lesser of the line of Valendil, Isildur's son, Elendil's son of Numenor. Shall he be king and enter the city and dwell there? People respond in the affirmative. And he comes in as king. Well, guess what? We have a king. He has labored in obscurity. He has been unheralded. He has lived a humble life, serving those that he has every right to reign over. And in fact, he has laid down his life for us. And today, he comes to claim his throne. He is Jesus. He's the second Adam. He's the bright and morning star. He's the first and the last. He's the one who is victorious in battle. He is the one who has healing hands. He is the mighty second person of the Trinity. He is the Son of God and the Son of Man. He is the Word incarnate. He is the wonderful counselor, mighty God. Everlasting Father and Prince of Peace. And the question is, will you receive him as king? Listen, this book of kings is all about how we fail and how Jesus succeeds. May we give Jesus our eternal king honor and praise that only he is due. You read in the book of Revelation that the angels and the living creatures all stand around saying worthy, worthy, worthy is the lamb who was slain to sit upon the throne. Folks, that's the king that we serve. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, I thank you so much that you have sent the true King, Jesus, to rule over us, to reign over us. Lord, you have made him master over our lives. And God, I pray that we would treat him and follow him and love him and serve him as our master. Lord, we thank you for Jesus and all that he has done all that he is and all that he does currently for us as he intercedes on our behalf and Lord all he is going to do when you send him back to this earth to rule and to reign in glory and power forever and ever Lord I thank you that we know the end of this story and that you have given us the king not that we deserve it but the king that we needed. Lord, help us to be surrendered in every way to this king. Lord, help us to bring glory to your name and to the name of Jesus. Lord, if there is someone here who doesn't know your son as Lord and Savior, King, I pray that tonight, tonight, would be the time that they do that. Lord, and for those who have given themselves to you, 
let us be reminded that you are enthroned upon high and you rule over us. Help us to act like you, our good king, rules over us. So God, you just work in us whatever way you see fit. Bring glory to your name through this invitation time in Jesus' name. Amen. In our invitation time, if you need Jesus, come talk to me as we stand and pray. If you want to join this church, come talk to me when we stand and, and sing. Um, if there's something else I can pray for you, help you with, I want to do that. But Christian, I just want to tell you, let, let's just let's take some time and just think about who we really serve and what Jesus has done. He has done what no one else could do for you. He has sent Jesus to die on your behalf. And it is through that that you have the righteousness of God. You have been wiped clean. You have been made new again. What glory we owe our Savior. Let's stand as we begin.